Thank you, Marlene, for putting your heart out in prayer, praying your heart out. This morning, as we begin our time together in the Word, um, I want to remind you of where we are in the in the calendar year. I want to, uh, to get your mind around the fact that we're coming into that season when we remind ourselves of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And if you haven't been thinking about it, I want to encourage you to do so. Um, I was looking through uh, for one of the small groups that I'm in, a Harmony of the Gospels and all of the places where this story is touched in the four Gospels. And I would encourage you to take some time to look through those things and read those things this week. You cannot refresh yourself often enough about the cost of our forgiveness. We cannot be too aware that heaven gave Jesus so that this world might have the opportunity, rejected or not, to follow him home. And so as Pastor Marlene was saying, the answer to us, to all of us, and to all of this mess that we find ourselves in is there. In a God who sees, who knows, who loves, who cares, who, every, who knows the hairs on every head of every individual on the planet and everyone who has ever lived. So I would encourage you to read through those things this week and just think about it. Just think about it. We, like the, uh, like the Jewish people of old, do cycles through the year where we remind ourselves of certain things, and this is one of those. Don't miss the opportunity. Don't miss the opportunity to take time to reacquaint yourself with the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, we're going to be talking about that for a few weeks, but I'm going to start with one of those stories that's around that story today. Um, I want to uh, invite you to join me at the end of the book of John, but I want to talk about these eight lonely days we find there. Eight lonely days. I don't know if you've ever been lonely. I don't know if you ever get lonely. But loneliness can be one of those things that seeps into your soul. You know what I mean? Like the chill of winter, it can just come into you and just start to quiet and harm and chill the inside of you. And that loneliness can be while you're in the midst of a group, while you're in the midst of a crowd. You can sit in a living room with your family and be lonely. Because loneliness can very often be something that we carry around inside of our heart, inside of our head. The sense that we are all alone, that no one understands us. That if they did know what we know about us, that they wouldn't want us. Loneliness can separate and break us from other people. And we're going to talk about eight lonely days. Eight days of separation like that. Eight days of anxiety like that, that we find in the text. But the text ends with a promise to you and I. And I want to just point that out. As the preparation for the end of the sermon, I want you to catch it at the beginning. At the very end of what we're talking about today is this promise that's given directly to you. It's aimed at you in specific. It's aimed by the Apostle John in the writing of his book. It's aimed by Jesus as he is speaking these words. It says, Blessed are those who have not seen. 
and yet believe. Jesus is speaking these words to Thomas, that familiar man whom we have, we have given the moniker of the doubter. But in reality, there's a lot more to this guy than doubt. But it is to, directed to him that Jesus says, Blessed are those who, like you, 2,000 years later, have chosen to believe, <clears throat> though you have not been able to see Jesus for yourself. Let's pray. Father, we open your word today asking that your Holy Spirit would be our guide. That nothing that comes from my lips would be on my own accord, but it would be all given and directed by you. May we find here what you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. I mentioned a small group that I have been a part of now for, I don't remember how many years, several years here in our church. Um, it's, a, it's a great group. We, we spend time going through, uh, through the Bible together, and we've been going through the book of John for a while in this particular group. Another group I'm, I'm in, you just got the book that we just finished. Hopefully this week you got a book called Unoffendable in the Mail. If you didn't, it's coming. If you didn't get the book Unoffendable and you, you don't get it by the end of next week, call the office or something. We'll make sure you get one. The point of this book is that we are all way too offendable. The point of having this book is for us to get a chance to look in the mirror and say, am I just getting a little touchy? Am I just getting a little too easily irritated? Not just when you're on the freeway. Everybody gets offendable on the freeway. At least that's how I see it. But I mean, at all times, is there, is you, are you just letting that sense of offense? Do you have your, your, your I'm offended flag ready to go up at any time? You, you got that thing clipped on to the mast and ready to run that up at any moment? We're sending you that book to try to help you with that. You will enjoy it. It's a fun book. It's a tough book because he challenges us. Challenges us. Challenges some of the core things we believe are true about ourselves and about mankind. But it's also just a fun read. If you haven't yet seen it, uh, I got a note from Kristen this morning. She said, I just read the book, the table of contents. And if you read the, the, the table of contents, it's quite entertaining because he picked very good titles for his chapters. So if I said enough about it to get you to read it, please open the book. Get a friend, sit down, talk to them, get a group of people together, um, some kind of covidly responsible behavior that allows you to do that and read it together, okay, so, so that you will have the blessing of fellowship. You can do it on the phone, you can do it on Zoom, you can do it, any, just do it, okay? Back to John, I think, or back to the book of John. John, I think when he describes what's happening here in these moments with Thomas, I think he begins to share with us a sense of what it was like for the disciples as they are living in the moment between the death and resurrection of Jesus. You have to sort of suss it out a little bit. You have to kind of dig and kind of nurture the thoughts and think through, read through carefully about what's going on. But I think if you suss it out, you'll see it. If you, if you take a little moment, you'll see it. It starts out right at the beginning of the text. On the first day, on the very first day, after the death of Jesus, on that, after that Sabbath has passed, and on that very first day of the next week, on the first day, the resurrection day, on the very first day, Mary Magdalene went out to the tomb early while it was still dark. You ever stop to think about why Mary's hustling out to the tomb first? Several ladies go out, but Mary's one of the ones. Mary is one who's gone out to the tomb early, early before, before the sun is up. She's gone to the tomb. 
Uh, and as you read your harmony of the Gospels this week, you'll see the, the rotations of people, and you can kind of start sorting out how they get there, when they get there, and how all these people are moving back. They're beating a path back and forth to the tomb. They're, they could follow each other's footsteps. There are so many of them going and coming. Mary goes out way before anybody else, and she sees that the stone has been taken away from the tomb. I want you to sit with Mary for a minute. I want you to sit with what you know about Mary. This is Mary Magdalene, Mary of Magdala, Mary who had been in the prostitution business before, Mary who had been suffering under the weight of what that meant in her society, in her life, in her family. Mary who had been degraded by humanity, degraded by men, and who had dealt with that for all the the years prior to knowing Jesus. And for the last three and a half years, she has been able to look in the eyes of at least one man on the planet who didn't give her the scan. Ladies, you all know what the scan is, right? Guys always try to disguise the scan, but we all do the scan. We try not to, we try not to, but the scan happens, especially if you're like 30 or under. After somewhere around 35, most guys get a handle on the scan, but she's just scanned all the time. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? You ladies know, you ladies know what I'm talking about. It's the, it's the look in your eyes and then the go down, come back up to your eyes look. Remember that? You liars. All you guys are looking like it never happened. I don't know what you're talking about. You know it's true. Uncomfortable chuckles from males in the room. Just for those of you online who can't know what's going on right now. Because it's happened in your house too. She can look in the eyes to one man who will not give her the scan. She can look in the eyes of one man who will not shame her for her past. For three and a half years, she has been able to depend on one person in her life who isn't thinking about who she was instead of who she is. And the fear that that shame is going to jump back to her present. I think that takes her to the tomb early that morning. The fear that that shame is going to become part of who she is again. And she won't have the protecting gaze of Jesus who not only looks at her differently, but looks at others and makes sure they do as well. That Jesus who lets people know with just a glance that she's forgiven. Her record is clear with him. She finds herself going to the tomb very early in the morning as quickly as she can. As soon as there's any dim light in in the horizon, she's out headed for the tomb to be as close as possible to Jesus. Even though she's sure he's dead. You remember that she runs immediately back. She arrives at the tomb. She finds the stone rolled away. And the text says she ran and came to Simon Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is John's moniker for himself. And said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb. I don't know where they've laid him. Huh. You know there's a, t- there's a tomb There's a tomb recently cooled off. A a tomb recently vacated that's just five miles away if Jesus needs another tomb. If somebody came along and looked in the garden and said, "This this is too nice a tomb for this man. 
This is too nice. This is a tomb of a rich man. This man shouldn't have been buried there. If somebody came and decided they were going to move the body, she knows where there's a tomb. It's just down the road. And Bethany, Lazarus was in it. He don't need it anymore. But she can't find Jesus' body. She runs back to tell Peter and to tell John. You remember the story. I don't know if you remember the story. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible just because of the, the humor of it. They race back to the tomb and you know they're, they're following those tracks that are being made. John lets us know that he beat Peter. I love the fact that this man who by the time he's writing his book is probably 90 is remembering when he was 17 and he beat Peter to the tomb. But I want you to catch, if you recall the story, if you remember, if you remember the story, they run to the tomb. There's a big difference between these two men. One of them has denied Jesus that Friday before. They both went into Caiaphas and Anna's house. They both were standing there in the courtyard. One of them warming himself by the fire with all of those who were condemning Jesus and one of them creeping as close as he could to the trial so that he could hear what was going on. One of them would show up at the cross. The other one's nowhere to be found. They raced to the tomb that day John arrives first. He stops outside the tomb. The stone rolled away. He's trying to take in the scene in front of him. There's a, a, a tomb, but there's no Jesus. There's no body. What, what happened? He, he just stops, and Peter blows right by him, being Peter. He goes right into the tomb. He looks around. He surveys the situation. He sees the grave clothes laying there. He specifically notes that the, that the covering of Jesus' face has been laid aside and folded up. The Bible says John looked in and he believed. And Peter wasn't sure. You see, as Peter arrives at the tomb, there's no wonder he's late. He's also carrying a giant load of shame. He's arriving at the tomb knowing what he's done, knowing who he is, knowing that this guy who bragged about what he would do for Jesus wasn't able to stand the questioning of a servant girl. And he drags that anchor all the way to the tomb that day. John comes out of the empty tomb believing in a resurrection. He's the first one that, that, that the Bible asserts that about. And Peter came back from the same experience. Not sure. Not sure. Shame can tear at your faith, can it? Shame can wear you down when you are trying to put your trust forward in Christ. The shame that you bear, either of your own creating or of the echo of someone else's words, that shame can keep you from having faith. Because it's just too big a mountain for even Jesus. Later that same day, in fact that evening, 
which for Judaism would be the next day, but we're on John's counting. Remember, John is writing well down almost to the first centuries, beginning to the beginning of the 100s, the second century actually. And so he's writing in a way that Romans would understand. He says the first day of the week when the doors were shut and it was evening. So he's saying that same night. The disciples were assembled. They were hiding. They were afraid that the Jews might come and find them. And the Bible says, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. The angels show up. They always say, Peace. Stop. Don't worry. Stop crying. Jesus shows up. He always says, Peace. Wait. It's just me. Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands, his sides. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. They're gathered in the upper room. They're hiding out. A lot has gone on. They've gotten testimonies back now from Mary. She's been to the tomb a second time. She's talked to some angels. She talked to the gardener who told her he was Jesus. She's come back and said, I saw Jesus. People in the room are saying, I don't know. Can we take her word? She was awfully verklept when she left. We don't know if she was in her right mind. And by the way, she's a girl. She can't even testify in court. Can we really accept that she's the one who knows for sure that, that she's the one Jesus showed himself to first? Are we kidding here? Why would he do that? <laughs> Think about it. For the rest of her life, the most important testimony about who she is will not be her former life. The most important testimony she gives in church for the rest of her life is not, I used to do this. It's I was the first one to see Jesus alive. I grabbed hold of him actually. I fell down and grabbed his feet. And he said, whoa, whoa, let go. I have not yet ascended to my... I, I saw him before he ascended. That's her testimony from now on. Talk about something that might lift your shame a bit. Just put a little helium in that balloon. They've, they've heard Peter and John say the tomb is empty and they've heard John say, I think maybe there's a resurrection. They've heard Peter say, I don't know. The other women have gone to the tomb and come back and they've come with similar stories. Look, we saw angels. We saw a risen Savior. We're pretty sure that the resurrection has happened. We're pretty sure he's alive, not stolen away. And as the evidence is building throughout the day, story after story, witness after witness, testimony after testimony, finally that evening, maybe supper time, maybe after supper, they're still in the upper room. They're talking over all the crazy things that have gone on. And Jesus shows up. This is the thing... One of the things I love most about Jesus, he shows up. When things are going sideways, he shows up. When you have nowhere else to turn, he shows up. When you feel the weight of your sin and your loss, he shows up. When you're on your knees with nowhere else to go but to stay on your knees until he shows up. 
It's wild how it happens. Sometimes it's a testimony, a word from someone. Sometimes it's something straight out of the Scripture. Sometimes it's that still, quiet voice. Sometimes it's a little louder. Sometimes it feels like there's a smile engaged with it. and Sometimes it feels like there's a frown engaged with it. But there's an engagement and He shows up. Showed up that day and notice what He does. He, he starts proving to them that He's real. John's setting us up for this story, though. John's, John's wanting us to know what's happening. And he lets us know immediately. Now, Thomas, called the twin, Didymus. Now you know a Greek word. It's the Greek word for twin, Didymus and twin, same word. Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciple therefore said to him, the other disciples, therefore, said to him, We have seen the Lord. <laughs> Thomas wasn't there. You talk about meetings you don't want to miss. Anybody else would have extreme frustration about missing this appointment? I don't like missing things anyway. I have, I have a serious case of FOMO already. Fear of missing out for the uninformed. I have a very serious case of it. I have passed that apparently on to my grandchildren. It does skip a generation perhaps. But this, this, this meeting is not the meeting you want to miss. Where was he? What was he doing? Is he hiding out? Did he have a better appointment? Did he have a better group to hang out with? I have some thoughts. They're just thoughts. There's nothing in the scripture about this. But you know how twins? Twins find each other in critical situations. You know twins who, who have that relationship of growing up together and always being next to one another and having shared everything in their lives, often even clothes, which is really a drag if you're not of the same gender. They will find each other when things are going sideways, when things are going hard, things are getting tough, when they're worried, when they're broken, when they're feeling downhearted or shamed. They'll find each other. I wonder if Thomas was out finding his twin, out talking to them about this situation, talking about what he was feeling. I wonder about Thomas's shame. And we all know about Peter's denial, right? We know Peter said, look, I will follow you. I will fight for you. And then blows it entirely. Peter tells us the story. He's the only one who was really there to witness it fully. Peter has to be the one who confesses to this in front of everybody and tells the details of this story. That they are now in the gospel is a testament to to, to the fact that Peter tells us the story. But you remember... You remember just a couple weeks before Lazarus had died. He's the one who's exited the tomb. Remember now there's a tomb available in Bethany if Jesus needed one. But remember what Thomas said? They were all down in Jericho where it was safe. They were ensconced in a nice safe spot far away from Jerusalem and all the trouble that was up brewing up there. They had tried to stone Jesus last time they were in Jerusalem. And when Jesus insisted on going back up to the region around Jerusalem where Bethany is to raise his friend from the dead, when Jesus had insisted to go to Lazarus' house, 
Thomas was the one who said, well, we all should go with him. We'll just, we'll go and die with him. He was certain he was going to die. Peter at least thought he might be able to chop enough ears off that he could stop from dying, maybe. I really think he was shooting for the head, but he was just real bad with a sword. And besides, the healing of putting the whole head, that would have been so messy. Maybe Jesus deflected it. But Thomas had sworn he would be willing to die with Jesus. He didn't show up at the cross either. What rock was he hiding under? Maybe maybe he's not in this room because he can't bear to face his friends. So cocky. So sure. It's tough. It's tough to eat crow. And crow like this comes with hot sauce, man. You've said you're going to stand with something. You're going to do it. You're going to be the coolest dude in the block. And you're, and then you don't. You don't make it. Perhaps it's shame that's kept him out of the upper room. But, but John wants us to know that Thomas wasn't there. That Thomas missed this appointment. Thomas called the twin, wasn't with him. They said, we have seen the Lord. And Thomas says to them, unless I see his hands, his hands in the prints of the nails and put my fingers in the prints of the nails and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Does does the request sound weird to you? Unless I see the nail prints in his hands. Okay. Okay. I want to touch it. I want to touch the nail prints on his hands. I want to touch the scar in his side. So Thomas is saying, I will, when I see Jesus, I don't even, I'm not going to believe my own eyes. Because I think all of you, all you people are nuts. You had kind of a mass delusion happen. I don't know how it happened. But all of you believe something that's not true. See, Thomas is now standing up for himself against the testimony of a whole room full of people. He's like the one person in the group who is refusing to buy it. You know, you know he's... He's got Mary who saw him and touched him. He's got the other women. He's got John who believes from the empty tomb that there's a miracle. He's got the testimony about the the clothes being there and Jesus being gone. They'd seen angels that day. And they had seen Jesus and he had shown shown them the scars. You know, there are people still who argue that these disciples had a, a moment when all of them saw the same weird thing that wasn't true. That's, there's still an argument there. People are still trying to make that argument. And then 
John gives us our eight days. After eight days, his disciples were again inside. Doors closed, locked, and Thomas was with them. After eight days, eight days of sticking to your guns with this. Could you do that? Your friends are saying, no, really, we saw him. We saw him. He was right here. He ate some fish. He he showed us the scars. He, He was right here in the room. We're telling you. I don't think these guys are lightweights either. I don't think they're going to like back off of this argument with him. Luke makes it even stronger, I think. Because Luke describes it a little more fully. He says, Jesus said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written. So Jesus says, look, this is the stuff I told you. These are the things I already talked to you about. They're they're there in the text. I, I told you about them in the Old Testament text. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. So here's the deal. Thomas is not only getting verbal testimony to what they actually saw. Look, dude, we actually saw Jesus for ourselves. They're getting the text. Look, here we have it, Psalm 22. It runs right through the crucifixion. It's right there. Here we have it, Isaiah 52. Look, here's the suffering servant. Look, here it is. It's right in the text. He told us about this. He made it clear to us, and now our minds have been opened up to it. I'm telling you, man, the text says this would happen. We saw him. We all saw him die. We all know he died. We all know he was buried, and we saw him alive, just as the Bible said, just as the text said. We're right on time, according to Daniel chapter 9. We're right in the midst of this midweek, and this resurrection thing, it's real, I'm telling you. And they're throwing texts at him. There's not just a a, a statement about what they saw. There's a statement about the text. 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 Here's what it says. A Jewish boy... Jewish boy is taught to trust the text. (laughs) I wish more Americans trusted the text. I wish more Christians trusted the text. Sometimes I wonder if Adventists still trust the text or read the text. I wish, wish we were still known as the people of the book. That used to be what we were known as, right? You know that, right? People who would give you an answer to a question began with, well, the Bible says. Wouldn't that be cool at a time like this? If you were standing in the grocery store and somebody said, what do you think about the times? What do you think about the mess we find ourselves? What do you, I don't know what to do. It's scary. What if we could all say, well, pretty scary, true. But the Bible says. The Bible predicted it would look just like this. It's right there in Revelation 13. The Bible said that he would never leave us or forsake us. It's right there in Matthew 28. Wouldn't wouldn't it be awesome if the world got to hear that from Christians every day? Well, the Bible says... This boy who was raised up to believe what the text taught him 
had his friends saying, not only did we see it, but here's the testimony of Isaiah. Here's the testimony of Daniel. Here's the testimony of the text, man. If you don't believe us, believe what the Bible says. It's a tough eight days, man. This is, this is a hard eight days. How do you tough it out? How do you keep arguing against that? After eight days had passed. The disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them and Jesus came. The doors are still locked. I love how Jesus keeps appearing in locked rooms. Jesus came, the doors were still shut and he he stood in the midst of them and again he said, just be calm, peace, relax. It's a little humorous, but it would scare every one of us. If Jesus suddenly appeared in the center of the aisle right here, first of all, it would be amazing, fantastic, and cool, but all of us would be shocked and probably scared. Hopefully we'd get over that right after he said, okay, peace, cool down, it's okay. Jesus in the modern vernacular might just say, cool your jets, it's me. That's what peace to you means. It's Greek translation. Then he said to Thomas, take your finger, touch my hand, big fella. Can you imagine? Thomas, I heard you. (laughs) You heard me? Really? I heard you. Put your finger right here. How would you say that? Would you say, Okay, would you please touch my hand? I wouldn't. I'd say, okay, big mouth, right there, touch it. I don't know, would Jesus say big mouth? And here, Jesus is lifting up his shirt, right? Or toga or whatever he's got on. Okay. You said you had to touch my hands and you had to put your hand in my side. Here you go. You imagine how sheepish these motive, these actions are. Okay. All right. No, you said you wanted to touch it. Okay. If you would feel weird doing it, imagine how he would feel. Because he's been arguing all week. You guys can shout the texts all you want. You can tell me what you saw all you want. I told you what it's going to take for me to believe. Touch the scar in his hand. Touch the wound in his side. When I do that, I'll believe. Before that happens, I'm out. Ten disciples. Okay. Jesus says to him, Do not be unbelieving. Do not be unbelieving. But believe. In 
the face of the evidence he had for those eight days, he had to be stubbornly, harshly pushing back to remain in an unbelieving state. You probably have family members who are like this. You probably have met people who are like this. They, they are probably better believers in their unbelief than you are in your belief. They just push it and push it and push it. And you, you're like, okay, I don't know what else to tell you. It's there. You can scream if you want, but your volume doesn't change the facts of what I'm looking at. These, these, are, these are fishermen, and there's even a zealot in the crowd. I don't think these were quiet little arguments and discussions. I think there was some serious man-to-man, eye-to-eye, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, going on. Imagine Mary coming up to him and saying, Thomas, I touched him. I held on to him. I fell at his feet just because it's how I responded, just because it's what was right. I fell at his feet and I wrapped my arms around him and I was holding him. I touched him myself. It's real. He's real. He's alive. I could see right in front of me the, the prints from the nails in his feet as I held on to him. I could still smell the fragrance of the ointment I had put on his feet. My hair matched his feet and the ointment came forward in my eyes and in my smell and in my face. I'm telling you he's alive. Touch. Touch. Stop. Stop working so hard at not trusting me. I don't know what area of your life this is working for you this way, but what area of your life are you holding Jesus out of? I'm, ex- I'm assuming since you're here today, you're a follower of Jesus at some level. Some of you for a long time at a very deep level, some of you fairly recent or fairly retur- recently returned are not that deep, and some of you have been in the church a long time, but you've never really gotten into the game of following Jesus wholeheartedly. What, what, what keeps you from opening that door? What's, what's holding you back from a fully functional relationship with Jesus? What keeps you from stepping into that next level. Is it shame? Is it something somebody said about you in church when you were a kid? And if you just pass through the living room of your house and your family is watching this and you haven't been to church in the last 15, 10, 20 years, why? Did somebody say something to you? Somebody do something shameful? Did you? Is it something you did to someone else? Is it your relationships at home? Is it your relationship with your children? Is it your relationship 
with your parents? What's helping you keep Jesus at arm's length? Because here's what I want to say to you. He still wants you. No matter what garbage you bring to this, He wants you. I love the fact that Jesus comes back and He specifically answers Thomas's need. He says, okay, touch my hand. Okay, hand in the side. Whatever it takes to get you across the line, buddy, let's get you across the line. This is a grace point moment. This is what it means to meet people where they are and help them grow. Jesus meets him right where he is declaring himself to be. I will stand here till I die if I have to. I'm not crossing the line until I get this. And Jesus says, okay, okay, I will meet you there. Now let's get you out of the unbelieving state into the believing state again. Eight days of testimony against Jesus. Eight days of being the accuser of the brethren. Eight days of being more like the devil than Jesus. And Jesus still comes and says, Okay, I will do what you're asking me to do so that you can believe. And it's the same with you. And it's the same with anybody who ever sees this videotape. Man, look at me, still talking about videotape. Old guy. No matter what you think you should hold up as your reason for being separated, put it down. He wants you. He desperately wants you to be in the family. Jesus would appear over the next 40 days to over 500 people. And just like this, he would show himself physically and demonstrate to them that he was, in fact, alive. Because he wanted them like he wants you and me. The text ends with this, this passage that I showed you at the beginning. Where he speaks directly to you and I. John wants us to get this because John's whole book is written to you and I. It's written to those of us who have not had an eyewitness. John knows he's the end of the line. He's the last apostle alive. He knows he's, he's at the end of the line of those who have ever actually seen Jesus. Everybody after this is going to have to rely on the testimony of someone who not, was not there. And that's why he writes the book in the way he does. It's why he ends the book in the way he does. And it's why he tells us the story of Thomas. When you read this story, continue through the next story because the next story is immediately after this telling you no one is doubting now. But the only person in the New Testament text that we have the testimony, that we have 
clear statement about who believed before they had seen Jesus, who believed before they had encountered him physically, is John himself. So he gets it. He understands our plight. And so when he finishes the conversation about Thomas, he makes sure we get Jesus' last words. Jesus looks at Thomas and says, Touch me, touch me. Stop being an unbeliever. Stop doubting. And he says then, Blessed are those who for the next two, three thousand years, I don't know how long until Jesus comes. Blessed are those who will, who will, who will because of the testimony of someone, not that they had seen Jesus, but that they had been changed by Jesus. Because of the testimony of people whose lives are different now. Blessed are the, blessed are the people have not seen and will not see and still believe. You see, everybody before them had not seen. And everybody after the first century has not seen. Jesus looks at you and he says, you are a specially blessed group. No matter what no matter what seems to keep you from that engagement, you are especially blessed. Because whatever little seed of faith you have is a faith in the testimony of the transformational power of the gospel. You've seen it in someone. You've experienced yourself. You've bought it when you read it in the text, but somehow you extended a kernel of faith and said, okay, I believe. So I just want to ask you to believe him for whatever whatever is struggling in your heart right now. To believe him that he can answer the problems of the political world. That he is the answer to the problems of the political world. To believe in that He can answer the problems of your physical need, your struggle, your, your body, your, the word from your doctor, the battle that you're having with your age. Just trust Him with it. With your kid who's being dumb and not following what they know to be true, just trust Him with it. With your kid who's being great and you're just worried that they're going to go off the rails someday when you're not around to help, trust Him with it. He says, don't, don't let yourself get derailed. There's an extra blessing on you directly from the lips of Jesus. Just believe. Let's pray. Father God, there are a thousand ways for disbelief and unbelief to creep in. Help us to hear your pronounced blessing and take it and accept it as our own. Thank you that the text is open with us about this struggle. That the disciples, even the disciples, 
had a hard time. Help us as your disciples of the 21st century to put faith in you for whatever the problem is ahead of us. Whatever keeps us up at night. Whatever stays at the top of our prayer list. Whatever is breaking inside of us when we remember it. The shame we feel over something that we have done. Today we, in faith, give all of those things to you. We ask for restoration of faith, the blessings that you offer this generation. That faith will be restored and we'll take another step with you today. In Jesus' name.